you know, China has made a lot of progress. It's not finished in the kind of progress I think it will make or it should make. Um, uh, we can't be sure that it will continue to develop and provide the kind of environment, you know, socially that we would have aspired to. But we always, I think we always saw progress being made in, in each area, and that encouraged us. You're about to hear my conversation with Peter Great. We talk about all things China. We talk about how Power Corporation of Canada began to invest in China back in 1986, the subsequent investments they've made, some entertaining stories along the way, how to think about investing with state-owned enterprises, and why joint ventures were the way to proceed. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm excited to have an extra special guest today. His name is Peter Kreit. Peter is here to talk to us about Power Corporation's investments in China, and he is the perfect gentleman to do that. Peter is currently the Senior Advisor to Power Corporation of Canada, he is also the chairman of Power Pacific Corp. He joined Power back in 1981 and has held several positions at the firm. Outside of Power, he has several board experience where he was the chairman of the Canadian-China Business Council from 2003 to 2018 and sits on a board focused on hospitals, education, energy, media. His resume is impressive and indeed very long. It would be an entire episode to go through all of it. So, Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matthew. Happy to be here. Look forward to a wide-ranging conversation uh, focused on all things China. But let's get started with how you first uh, joined the Power Corporation. Well, I, uh, I knew the family, the Demeray family, uh, from my early days at school, uh, Andre Demeray particularly. And uh, met them in the seventies, and uh, we stayed in touch over over our various careers. I went to to school in Europe, and then came back and did my uh, did my undergrad at Concordia. Worked with Deloitte's uh, or a previous company called Two Frost, which is now Deloitte, uh, okay. and then went back to Europe and did a, a an MBA at INSEAD. And uh, coming out of INSEAD, Paul Demre asked whether. Uh, I would accept to be uh, uh, his executive assistant, and uh, that was a, uh, that was a great offer, and I uh, I was happy to take it. Yeah. Great. And, and what did uh, what did that role, I guess, entail? So you're an executive assistant, and um, how long were you there, and, and what was your progress like through the organization? So uh, that was 1981, and uh, an executive assistant is uh, qualified if they know how to carry the bags of their boss. Um, the good news <laughs> is uh, you get to you get to know what's inside of the the briefcases, uh, which are very heavy, um, but they've got a lot of deals in it. So we we spent a lot of time uh, traveling the world, and uh, and uh, and he was working on a number of deals. That uh, in those days it was very exciting. Uh, it was a great. Uh, Apprenticeship for me. Um, I uh, I enjoyed uh, obviously the being engaged with uh, uh, someone so accomplished and and uh, who was a, an amazing an amazing mentor. Um, sure. Uh, but we we did a lot of fun things. Uh, the the first the first 
transaction that he was involved with at the time when I joined was actually making an investment in uh, a great Canadian company called Canadian Pacific. Um, oh, sure. That, uh, that was a, something that he had uh, very much on his mind in those days. It sounds like a, an excellent learning experience. Um, and, and I know, right, and the reason that we have you on the show is really to talk to you about uh, China uh, and that you were intimately involved in in leading the efforts in China. Um, maybe talk to me about uh, sort of how you got to the place where you were um, uh, either leading the efforts or, or highly influential uh, in the efforts in China. So my my role uh, after being executive assistant to to Paul Demery for for seven years or so was to take over uh, our media companies. We had uh, some uh, broadcast properties, the radio and television, and in English and in French in Ontario and Quebec in secondary and and uh, tertiary markets, uh, which was was new new for power. Uh, we'd also developed. Uh, direct-to-home satellite business uh, uh, in the U.S. And, and cable business in the U.S. and partnership with uh, the CBC. Um, and uh, and after that, uh, we in, in 2000, we sold that business. Um, there was a tech bubble going on, and, and uh, I didn't think we could do any better than to sell it at that moment. And, and it's always hard to sell something that you've been working closely with, but we did it. It was the right thing to do. And then we became involved with the, the biotech industry, uh, for a number of years, and uh, simultaneous with that, I became a little bit more involved with uh, things in uh, in China, and uh, which uh, was the responsibility of Andre Demery. And uh, uh, slowly, I took over from uh, from him and that uh, those uh, those investments. Great, and, and maybe uh, just to take a step back, and you said that Andre was initially leading the efforts um, with China. When did power begin its interest in China? So power uh, was, uh, and uh, Paul Demeria uh, was initially involved with uh, with things China uh, in the late the late seventies, uh, just as the uh, China was uh, was starting to think about opening its door. Uh, Paul Demeria pulled together a group of. Uh, Canadian businessmen uh, forged an organization called the Canada-China Trade Council in those days. Converted the name to Business Council later, um, and uh, and he launched the first mission to China. Uh, remember that China was recognized by Canada in 1970, and the Americans recognized right. China in 1979. So it was important uh, for uh, for Canada to uh, make a place for itself in China. And uh, Paul Demer was uh, was the the lead on that, working with China experts here. Uh, and I can tell you, just to organize a first mission to China of business people, uh, top CEOs from the, throughout the country, that took one year to plan. Uh, wow! It was a very very difficult process uh, because China was just not, uh, while it had the desire to be open to the world, it had to learn what that. What that in, involved, and uh, um, so they they were really at the moment where the door, where Deng Xiaoping started the open door policy, and uh, right. they had a series of, of meetings, and there were there were some trades uh, trade deals, or you know, there's some selling of pro- Canadian product to to China, but uh, it was more putting a, a, a stake in the ground, I think, establishing the fact 
uh, that uh, Canada had a great interest in in China and supporting China to become a uh, a uh, successful uh, economy, and uh, trying to identify how how Canadians could play a role in that. The council uh, in those early days uh, had an office in Toronto and an office in Beijing. The office in Beijing, if you can believe it, was in a hotel, and during the <laughs> during the day it was it was uh, during the day it was a, it was a bedroom and uh, converted into an office and. And that was it. Uh, and it was just off of, uh, of Tiananmen Square in the, called the, the Beijing Hotel. Uh, and and uh, literally helping people, Canadians coming by, uh, by getting translators, uh, organizing tickets because the Chinese system, when they were, when you wanted to go to a city outside of, let's say, Beijing, you could get a, you could buy a ticket uh, to go to your destination, let's say Shanghai or, or Xi'an. Uh, but you couldn't get a return ticket. So the process of making sure that someone wasn't stranded in the other location was quite important. Uh, so sure. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very basic kind of service that was offered, and it got, got more sophisticated as the, as the activities of the council got more more sophisticated. Uh, and uh, and uh, today, today it's actually, I think, the only uh, uh, bilateral trade council or business council that is still, uh, still active. Um, Oh, really? And uh, it, it, yeah, it, there have been multiple councils that are engaged in, 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 in activities between two countries, but they, 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 they do super well for a while and then they, they kind of peer out. And I think that the support that, that uh, the, the Demery family has provided to the council uh, and, and, and making sure that Canadian business has been interested in it uh, over many, many years uh, has allowed it to uh, have this kind of very, very unusual status. Uh, you know, I, I, it, it reminds me that, uh, you know, what, what else did, 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 did the council do? If it got, if it got more sophisticated, uh, we would do trade missions. And I can remember okay. uh, Paul Demers Sr. Um, Organizing a mission uh, with the staff of the Canada-China Business Council, and we would be sitting in what was the great, the new, the newest hotel in Beijing. It was a, a Sheraton Great Wall Hotel um, uh, in the early, in the early, in the, the mid '80s, the mid '80s, okay. and uh, uh, there would be about 30 business people there, and uh, the council would organize the meetings for everybody in that uh, in that uh, group. And at the end of the day, we'd all get together in Mr. Demers' uh, suite, uh, and we would go one by one and ask everybody, okay, how did it go? Who did you meet? Was it the right person that you met? If it wasn't the right person, well, do you know who the right person is? Yes. Okay. What's their name? Great. And then instructions to the team. Okay, go get that meeting. He wants to, he has to meet them tomorrow morning. And, uh, and uh, so uh, we do this for a couple of days, and eventually – People would meet the, the right people uh, uh, to correspond with, and uh, it was a very sort of simple uh, construct at the beginning. Um, but, but that was because China was not totally organized in itself, uh, to, ready to, sure. to to receive uh, to receive foreigners. Uh, they wanted to, they just didn't know how. It got more sophisticated. Um, uh, it got more sophisticated in the mid '80s. Uh, when uh, we uh, asked uh, the Prime Minister at the time, uh, Brian Mulroney, 
whether he would allow the council council to help uh, organize uh, uh, banquets in China, a banquet, because the, the tradition okay. of, uh, of prime ministers visiting China had been that uh, uh, they were received, of course, by the uh, by the heads of state in an official an official uh, venue. Uh, but before leaving, the foreign guest, in this case um, Prime Minister Bolmrudi, was uh, was uh, hosted the, the did a reciprocal banquet hosting it in the Chinese guest, and at that he was okay. in control of the list of people going and also how they were seated. And so what we proposed to uh, to the Prime Minister and to the Embassy was that uh, we do the the seating plan. So that the, the that it wasn't exactly the protocol uh, that you would expect from uh, from uh, from the foreign affairs uh, approach. It was more the 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 interest of of the of the trade side of the uh, of, of foreign affairs. So who would be so that you wouldn't have a, a an expert in defense sitting beside a, uh, a university president or a manufacturer of pulp and paper. You would have you try sure. to find. Uh, synergies in in that group. That was that was a big that was actually a big jump from from a, from a Canadian uh, policy perspective. Uh, they didn't typically do that. Um, wow. the, the protocol sort of trumped trumped the the, the, the the business, but it was incredibly useful. Uh, if you can imagine, uh, if you had the ability to invite you know one person to a banquet where. The Prime Minister of Canada and your Prime Minister were in attendance, and uh, that was a that was a wonderful way. That was a that was a wonderful invitation to start with. Sure, and uh, sure. and it was a great way for for people to sit down and, and talk and 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 start a, a relationship. So these were these were uh, this was a this was a great and this mesh this type of everybody knows I guess in Canada of the. The, the Team Canada uh, approach that uh, Mr. Kretschmann developed uh, uh, a few years later, um, right. where 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 he uh, which which actually came by by accident. Uh, Team Canada was really going to be a mission of the Prime Minister, but when the Prime Minister uh, let it be known to other premiers that uh, he was going, they all asked whether they could go, and uh, so it right. uh, when when they accepted then. Mr. Kretschmann, Prime Minister Kretschmann named it a, a Team Canada approach, hockey reference, of course. And um, yes, so those were uh, those were good missions. But I'm I'm going on. No, on. no, that's that, that's wonderful. Um, uh, very fascinating. So the China uh, um, Canada China Business Council sounds like it was uh, very instrumental early on, particularly in just. Um, logistics and arranging introductions and uh, and making sure that the, that connection was made to appropriate people. Um, I'd love to transition to talk about sort of Power's first initiatives, uh, whether they be joint ventures with with Chinese or or your investments in China. Uh, so maybe we can start with what, what was your first uh, initiative with uh, investing either with Chinese uh, individuals or in China. Uh, so the uh, in 1984, uh, well, just let me go back. When 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 Deng Xiaoping uh, wanted to have an open door policy, he didn't have vehicles, he didn't have entrepreneurs, or didn't have state owned enterprises that could actually 
deal with with uh, with the outside world. So he created a, a couple of institutions. The first one he created was was called CITIC, the Chinese International Trust and Investment Corporation. And, and this was what he did was he hired he asked a very illustrious family, industrial family of the pre-revolution uh, uh, era, uh, if uh, who stayed during the during the revolution and uh, stayed in China. He asked that family, and the family's name the family was Wong Yiren, uh, to, to create a, a crown corporation, what we would have called crown corporation in China, to do business with uh, in China and, and with, with the rest of the world. Uh, okay. It was started at the same time as the open door policy, so 1979. So in 84, they had their fifth year anniversary to which two Canadians were invited, one of which was, was Paul Demmer, and the other was uh, Fred Burbich of Canadian Pacific. And and I was assistant to, to Paul Demmer there, there those days. So we had meetings in the Great Hall of the People, and uh, we were hosted uh, uh, for one session with uh, with Deng Xiaoping himself, which was quite uh, quite fascinating. Wow. But at that meeting, uh, at that meeting, uh, Paul Demmer said to to Wong Yeren, we should really try and do something together. Uh, let's do something in Canada. And Wong Yeren said, that sounds very interesting. What do you do in Canada? And in those days, PowerCore had a significant interest in a company called Consolidated Bathers, which manufactured about a million tons of newsprint a year, and Foxboard, okay. and, and glass, at Dominion Glass. And so uh, in a couple of, in, in a month or so, uh, his uh, emissary, uh, senior vice president of, uh, of CITIC, Came to Canada and Andre Demers and I showed him around uh, to our our pulp plants and uh, he reported back yes they do have knowledge they do have expertise uh, and uh, we should do something with them uh, and so we said well let's let's uh, we're not going to sell anything to you um, we're going to buy something together one of the concerns that the Chinese because they were nascent in their their business in dealing with with foreigners was they really didn't know if they were getting a good price for things. But if you bought something right. together with them, then they that worry was off the table. So you kind of put yourself right. on the same side of the table for that uh, for that event. And and because it was in Canada, which was Paul Demmer's idea, uh, we had a very high comfort zone in terms of the, the investment. And it was also an industry yeah. we, we knew well. So we, we ended up buying a, uh, in, in, uh, in British Columbia, on the Columbia River, uh, a plant uh, in Castlegar called the Selgar Pulp Mill. It took nine months to negotiate it and then negotiate and also uh, identify it because there were a number of assets in British Columbia in those days that uh, we could have uh, invested in, and uh, we, which was great. We had choice. And uh, together with a Chinese team of, of people that were actually experts in the pulp and paper business, uh, we uh, we identified uh, this plant and uh, proceeded to uh, to acquire it uh, on a 50/50 basis with the Chinese, and it was an unusual unusual relationship uh, for foreigners with the Chinese because most foreigners want to have absolute control, and we said that we would have an equal relationship, and we alternated the chair of the uh, of the board every two years, but we also said that if we had a dispute. <clears throat> the management itself would continue to operate the plant. So it wouldn't stop because one of the other partner had a problem. It would continue to, to produce. And we never, uh, never one time did we actually have a problem. Uh, we had more, 
we had, I would say we had all our problems up front negotiating the deal, which always okay. has the ups and downs, as you can imagine. But uh, sure. we, uh, we, we, we developed the right kind of principle, operating principles, and then we did a deal, uh, a contract around those principles. And it, it worked out very well. So given how um, early, so that was in the 84, Peter? So that was the, the trip was in 84. Uh, we started negotiating in 85. We did the deal in 86, September for September 1st, 86. Okay. So yeah, it, in, uh, I'm just to um, ground myself in 1986, China. Um, my expectation, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that they're uh, manufacturing or, or if they had a pulp and paper um, uh, industry, it would have been far less sophisticated than what we'd be able to do in, in Canada. Um, you're right. How much? You're, uh, you're right. I, w- I was just going to no, no. say you're right. And, and the reason you're right is it's, it's simple to, to, to express uh, when you're in the pulp and paper business, it's all about how large your facility is. Because you've got a lot of very sunk capital costs, and you want to amortize that on as many ton capacity as you can. So the big plants in those days in China, and we went and visited them, uh, would be ten to fifteen thousand tons. And and okay. we were talking about, and we we ended up buying uh, a two hundred eighty thousand ton plant that uh, we increased capacity to four hundred and fifty thousand tons. So. Uh, yeah, we did have we did have uh, uh, scale uh, expertise uh, in in this business. The Chinese did have knowledge, uh, though, so as well, but they just didn't have the scale. So, I guess going back to uh, where I was going with the question is: so somebody from Civic, which is a state-owned enterprise at that point, is coming doing a co-investment in pulp and paper. China at the time, under the leadership of uh, Deng Xiaoping, uh, really interested in modernization, opening the economy. How much of that investment was for knowledge sharing, or how much knowledge sharing happened? And and you know, is it tangible that they've taken knowledge back and, and implemented it domestically? Well, absolutely. Um, I mean, that was the principle that we wanted to operate under. Um, we uh, we we took joint decisions on everything we didn't we didn't want to assume the responsibility but also we thought that it was important that the chinese be up to speed on everything i remember one of the more difficult concepts was uh, was insurance and how do you price insurance for, for for the mill in case of problems or fires or explosions or um that kind of that kind of issue they, they they were it was a challenge to get them to speed but once we did it was it was fine and they was so it was so balanced that uh, and when 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 we wanted to grow the business and expand the, the capacity, it happened to be the turn of the Chinese to chair the uh, the, uh, the the board of of, of the pulp company and uh, it, and I, I can remember we were sitting in the village of the town of uh, of Castlegar in a town hall meeting with uh, with citizens. And it was the Chinese explain, explaining to the Canadians in the room uh, why it was a good thing for us to increase the capacity and and why it was not going to be that bad to have twice as many trucks running through the town. Um, so <laughs> it, was, it was a very much a shared experience. And and from a Chinese perspective, this was the largest deal that China had ever done outside of China. So it was important wow. for them. And, and the good news was that uh, it was a very successful deal for them. 
uh, was successful for us as well. Um, so this this established the base of the relationship that we had with Cidic with the Cidic group, uh, which we still enjoy uh, today. Um, great. I'd love to expand a little bit more on that relationship um, uh, with Cidic. Yeah, I know that that's been a uh, a long investment for uh, for the Power uh, Corp. Um, Maybe maybe we can talk a little bit about the relationship with Cidic, and I'd also love to to have a sense of when your first investment uh, in China, in actual uh, mainland China, uh, came, and, and what that was. Good. So, our uh, our firm desire was to have uh, an investment with the Chinese in Canada, that allowed us to understand how the Chinese do business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we wanted to then do a, a deal in China with Citic, and that was a little slow in coming, uh, which was okay because we did want to have a little time to pass uh, in Canada together. Uh, but uh, we put a little bit of pressure on the, on our, our our Chinese partners that you know please find us something that we could do together, and we ended up uh, acquiring together with Citic a square kilometer in uh, Pudong. Which is the other side of the river in uh, in Shanghai, where all the massive growth is, and you see these incredibly tall, where the highest buildings in Asia really are today, uh, including right. the Pearl Radio Tower um, at the elbow of the of the river. So we had a square kilometer in what was designated to be a high tech park, and we were the first uh, acquirers of of land, and uh, uh, that was in 1993. So it was quite a few years after uh, we, uh, we we had made the investment in the Fulton paper mill. We we developed that uh, property um, and had uh, you know pharmaceutical companies on it, uh, uh, software developers on it. Uh, it was uh, it took a long time for it to come to full maturity, but it uh, it was a successful investment for us. Uh, it was uh, it was really transforming land that was rural farmland, uh, despite the fact that it was like just a, a couple of miles from downtown Shanghai. Uh, but right. We had to start start by by taking all the farmers and and uh, finding them new homes and new jobs, either new farming jobs or other kind of jobs, uh, because that was our, our responsibility. And um, and then con- yeah. converting the land with with roads and electricity and uh, steam and uh, and water and sewage and that kind of uh, that kind of infrastructure and then we and we would lease it to uh, to, uh, to to typically to foreign uh, foreign enterprises wanting to uh, to get part of it. it strikes me almost as the equivalent of buying a square kilometer of midtown Manhattan from the Dutch a little bit like that. But you know, things housing values uh, uh, go up, but they don't always go up at the beginning. And great, great uh, hockey sticks. Uh, they, sure. uh, they, they, they have, they are. I mean, Shanghai is a is a globally uh, important city, and has the the rents to prove it. So, right. Uh, <laughs> Um, so that was in in '93, and, and you partnered with Citic um, on that. Out of curiosity, who did you buy the land from? Was it owned by the government at that point, or was it owned by the individual farmers, or how did that work? 
But it's a very interesting question, and it's one of the it's one of the challenges that China has because China uh, it was the, it was owned by the government. Uh, that's a long story. Okay. It was owned by the government, it was owned by the little local city government. But one of the problems that the Chinese have got is that it's a wealthy country, but the wealth is too much in the hands of the government and not enough in the hands of the of the people. So these local local entrepreneurs that we're getting to know now, like Jack Ma, are are, sure. are, are changing that changing that dialect. Uh, uh, and uh, and it's very important that, 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 that I think for China and for, for the Chinese that they the wealth becomes into the hands of, of people and more and more of that's happening. But if you can imagine, all of everything was owned by the government and very little was owned by individuals. So that 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 transition that conversion is uh, is happening. Interesting. Um, so that was in, in '93, and it sounds like it took some time to develop the land and and uh, and um, realize the investment. Um, do you still own that land, out of curiosity? Okay. Great. No, no we sold. Um, uh, we sold the 100 percent of it off. Okay. And what? When did you do that? About 10 years after we started. So about '93, uh, yeah. '03, I guess. Yeah. Great. Uh, and then. Um, it, that was a, a partnership with Civic. Sounds like it was successful. Uh, what did that lead to as far as uh, your next investment or investments? So uh, at that point, we looked at a number of things. We were we were looking at the uh, high, uh, power, the power industries, because China, China was going to grow. We knew very quickly, and uh, it needed to have increased uh, access to to electricity, and uh, so coal fired power is. Cool. Plants were were the uh, the norm there, and uh, and uh, we brought together an incredible team of of people, and also unusually we brought together Hydro uh, Ontario Hydro uh, as it was called there. I think maybe it was Ontario Hydro International and Hydro Quebec together hmm. with with PowerCorp. So it was a a, a tri tripartite deal. Uh, with uh, to, to to do something in in China in the power industry, um, we worked really hard on it, and we put up uh, each of each of us put up thirty three million bucks. So it was a hundred million dollars that we had to invest. But the the French government uh, uh, did so so much of a heavy underwriting of its own players in the in the marketplace in China that there was no way that we could uh, we could uh, we could make money. So we we ended up. Deciding altogether that it was uh, it was not going to be a successful deal, and everybody got ninety nine point nine percent of their money back, just the cost of the operation okay. for a couple of years. So that was you know sometimes sometimes uh, the deals the best deals you you do are the ones you don't do, and that was probably sure. one of them. It was probably better to stop it there than uh, and we invested in uh, some highways, in uh, with okay. with other other some other Canadians like Onyx and. Uh, with uh, KS Lee in Hong Kong, uh, which was a, you know part of the infrastructure build for China, we had a crazy investment there uh, with in between in, the, in between the Taiyuan and Xijiazhuan, which was a road bringing essentially the coal from the coal mines uh, to uh, to market into the uh, to the power plants, and they just used very you know windy slow roads uh, in the past, so this was a, a very important thing. But the road washed out twice, what, just before we were supposed to be taking delivery, which was uh, <laughs> quite an event. And then, and then, but it was repaired each time by the builder. Uh, they they honored their their commitment because they had not handed it over. 
And then okay. when uh, when it came for the trucks to be going down the roads with these with these uh, with these heavy loads, uh, the the police stopped them because none of them had brakes that were sufficient to for the hills, uh, and uh, <laughs> with the speed that they were going. So they had to have all that changed. And then then the Chinese got even smarter. They see, they said, hey, you know, we have to pay tolls on this road, which is what the way we made our our our, our revenue. And then they would they would take the empty trucks and load one empty truck on top of another truck, and so they'd only have to pay half the toll. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if it wasn't if that wasn't if that wasn't enough, the Chinese decided to do a road in parallel to the road that we built a number of years later. So that was the one deal where we actually didn't make any money. We actually made a, a small loss on that deal, but it wasn't a lot of money, so it wasn't it wasn't fatal. But um, that was sure. a, a challenging, a challenging uh, investment. And then uh, we also were working at that time with uh, with Bonbardier, and uh, Bonbardier had a very uh, important transportation division, and they were they were leaders uh, in uh, in that, uh, you know, competing with Siemens and Alstom and and uh, Hitachi and uh, and. All of those companies wanted to do something in China, and, and the people from Bombardier uh, said, "You know, could 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 we do something together?" And we said, "Fine, but we'd have to we'd have to be in a joint venture together," which they didn't typically do. Uh, they were doing things mostly on their own, uh, but in China, they thought maybe this would be the right thing to do. And and when we got involved with the project, we decided uh, that it would not make a lot of sense for us to go and buy a plant. But what we should do is first. Get ourselves an order to uh, manufacture some railway cars, and then, and then simultaneously, as we're working on an order, we work with a, we choose a plant that we'd like to work with, and uh, and become ready for uh, the acquisition of that uh, that plant together with the Chinese, uh, and that we would uh, we would buy it simultaneously with the first order, and that was the right thing to do because the Germans and the Japanese sat for years with uh, with plants that were completely empty. Uh, we had the benefit of starting the plant and having it busy the first day. Um, uh, and it was a very, very interesting, very interesting times. They actually, we actually built at our plant the trains that go all the way up to Tibet, which are very unusual trains because they need to provide the oxygen and uh, the, 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 rail, right. the rail lines were built on kind of a tundra, which was shifting. And uh, okay. you know the Chinese, of course, the the premiers. The, the the plan was to do it in in seven years, and the premier went to the CEO of the railway company and said, "Well, would you mind doing it in five, please?" And <laughs> they did it. They did it. Great. Um, so, yeah. And, and, and what they, year they, was they, that? They, so that deal was signed in '97, '97, '98, and. Uh, and uh, yeah, we were uh, so we we started it earlier, like three, four, five, three, four years, about five years earlier. Um, but uh, uh, and that was the wait. That was uh, that was uh, was maybe awkward, but I think the right call in the end because when we started, we uh, we had actually something to do, um, and and uh, we also bid on. Uh, on, on metro uh, subway cars uh, systems uh, as well after that, uh, which was quite successful. China was was slow in doing the development of its rail. It really focused first on 
highways and uh, okay. air transportation. So it did a lot of a lot of really good airports and uh, <laughs> a lot of amazing highways. And a lot of those highways, you had the impression that they were uh, going, you know, from one place to another place, and there was just no one on it. But it didn't take very long for for for, for transportation to be, you know, fully utilized. Right. In China. But they do great roads. I mean, I, I, I think we could actually learn something from the Chinese when it comes to building roads. Maybe I'm just speaking right. from Quebec perspective, but uh, <laughs> we, we have a, you know, pretty tough roads in, in Quebec and uh, they, they, they don't have the weather we have. They, they have it in some places, sure. but they don't have the exact weather we have, but it, it's uh, first class what they do. Right. Um so this very fascinating. So it sounds like uh, early investments in China, uh, a lot of uh, joint ventures, uh, infrastructure um, in, in, in in some ways. Um, I know that at one point you acquire a, a proportion, a, a small amount of uh, Citic itself. Um, tell me a little bit about that deal, uh, about uh, acquiring a portion of, of the uh, the equities of Citic. So in in 1997, you probably remember that the uh, the Hong Kong became uh, a part of of China, and it was what they called the hang the handover. Some called it the hangover uh, because <laughs> immediately after that, the stock market took a massive tumble, and uh, it was almost as though people didn't have confidence in China and didn't have confidence with uh, with Hong Kong. Um, we had we had been following Citic Pacific, uh, a major subsidiary of of, of Citic uh, Group, uh, and and uh, we we knew the, the the chairman quite well, we knew the company quite well, and we studied it, and we decided that the prices had moved down so strongly that this was really a good time to invest. Uh, of course, uh, we didn't we didn't end up with a, a, a huge stake. Um, but it was an important stake, and uh, we're, Andre Demmer was invited onto the board uh, as a result of, of our, our stake, and uh, and the, the Chinese government was actually very grateful that uh, we were there to to support the, the, this this important company of theirs in at a time when when a lot of people were 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 betting against it. Uh, China China Pacific Pacific had done. A lot of amazing, amazing things have been in a great diversity of, uh, of businesses, and uh, actually today it is still the same listed company, except it's the effectively a reverse takeover by the parent. So the, the parent injected itself into the uh, the subsidiary, and uh, and now that's the company that's trading. So it's it's no longer the company that uh, that uh, Andre uh, was on the board of. Uh, uh, it is, is now a, a huge, huge conglomerate, which includes one of the largest, uh, a large bank, and and the fourth largest uh, investment uh, brokerage company uh, in in the world. Um, so they're, they're very, very, very active. Wonderful. Um, and uh, I mean, maybe summarize, um, I, I'd like to get to the China AMC investment, which I think is the most recent larger investment. Um, but uh, maybe summarize some of the investments that we haven't talked about in China, if there's if there's uh, more there. Well, uh, what we did in uh, 2005, uh, 
China had uh, has a restricted currency, still has a restricted currency, but it also had a restricted right. stock market. And uh, in in 2004, uh, it was uh, uh, foreigners were allowed to invest in uh, in the stock market in China through a vehicle called the Qualified Foreign Institutional Investor or QFI. And uh, we had looked at a mutual fund company in the, the years preceding that, and decided not to go forward uh, with it for various reasons. And this opportunity to invest in the stock market came up, and we thought we should probably uh, learn a little bit about it. And should we ever want to get into the mutual fund business in China, to be regulated by the Chinese government, to be known by the Chinese government would be a, uh, a big advantage. And uh, but the unusual thing about it was that uh, uh, it was this was not something that our subsidiaries wanted to do. It wasn't something that you know, Great West Life was looking at or Investors Group was sure. looking at. So so Power itself decided to to do it. And then the challenge that the Chinese had, the regulator had, was that they didn't expect a company that was not directly itself a mutual fund company and therefore regulated to be making an application because they wanted to have to have correspondence with the reciprocal regulator in, in, in whatever country that, oh, I see. that the investor sure. was from to, the, to know that they were in good standing. Well, we applied anyway. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and within months we got our approval. I think we were the 13th on the list and we were, one of the, we were the first ones to get it. And the other one, funny enough, that was uh, along with us that uh, received their approval was the Bill Gates Foundation. So we oh, both wow. at the same time made commitments to 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 invest in in China, and we were both not regulated institutions. So it's worked out extremely well uh, for us. Uh, we we hired a, a team of uh, portfolio managers and analysts uh, in Shanghai. A lot of people did right. the same thing, but they did it in Hong Kong, or they did it in Singapore, or they did it somewhere else. But we were very very uh, insistent that we should be local and and have local staff, and we only had local local people there's no there's no no one from montreal or from canada that uh that is there except to visit uh to to, to review the, the their progress in fact we had a call this morning at uh at uh six o'clock uh to yeah. learn about some of the exciting companies that they're working on one company that they that we looked at was is called sani and uh i think it's probably going to take over caterpillar's business uh in globally it's growing so fast but we'll see. Um, I'd, I'd yeah. love to come back to um, the uh, the QV and, and how you think about approaching the Chinese uh, public equity market uh, in just a moment. But why don't we sort of finish up with um, thinking about uh, power corp investment, and then we'll move into the investment philosophy, because I have a lot of questions on uh, when you first get involved, how you think about approaching that. Um, Mm-hmm. But uh, one question that I wanted to, to get to before before there is, uh, we, we've talked a lot about uh, joint ventures starting in '86 and then subsequent uh, ventures through the '90s. Um, from my seat, at least in 2020, uh, you can you can look back at China, and and it can seem obvious um, that uh, here is a, a country with a, a massive population um, back in '86. I think it had uh, the GDP that was somewhere in the neighborhood of Canada's uh, GDP. Um, so you you can yeah, just um, see the growth in front of you. 
But along the way, there's a lot of things that happen. Um, there's uh, the uh, Tiananmen Square protests, uh, Asian financial crisis. You have SARS. You mentioned the Hong Kong takeover. Um, all sorts of uh, lots of risk within it. How did you um, remain committed to China, and did your conviction waver at any point? I don't think so. I, I think that uh, I think initially. Uh, there, there was a fascination and an interest in China, and I think that gave way to an appreciation for the intellect of the Chinese people and the devotion of the leaders to improve the quality of life of, uh, of Chinese generally. And I know that may sound quite strange uh, to many people's ears because it's considered a you know a dictatorship and a totalitarian state that uh, is very aggressive, uh, you know, very uh, you know controlling, and it is all those things. Uh, but it has migrated from what it was in 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 the in the sixties and the early seventies. Uh, today, it's no longer it's no longer the same the same place. Uh, you know, if you take a photograph of China today and you compare it to to Canada. You would you would not be very happy with the the comparison. Uh, you would say I'd rather much rather be you know uncomfortable uh, in in Canada, but I think that the that China is much more about the the video than the than the, than, the, than the picture. It's really about where China has been, where it is now, and where it's going. And um, right. I think the, the the you know China has 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 made a lot of progress. It's not finished in the kind of progress I think it it it, it, it will make or it should make. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we can't be sure that it will continue to develop and provide the kind of uh, environment, uh, you know, uh, socially that that we would we would aspire to. Uh, but we always we I think we always saw progress being made in in each area, uh, and that encouraged us. Uh, we saw that there were you know, there were four or five hundred million people taken out of abject poverty. Uh, where they had, you know, less than uh, a dollar or two dollars a day to live on. Uh, that's mm -hmm. that's now that's now ten percent of the population as opposed to ninety percent of the population. Uh, so uh, those are good things, and and from a human rights perspective, to be able to to feed yourself is pretty is pretty critical. Uh, it's not perfect place. It's still not a perfect place. Uh, but then again, you know, we have to be careful because we're not that perfect either. We've got a lot of improvements sure. to to make as well, and and others may point that out to us. But uh, China is 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 always difficult in the sense that the culture of China runs very very deep. It's very different than what we know. The language barrier is very high. The Chinese overcome the language barrier because they speak English. I think there are probably more English-speaking Chinese than there are Americans speaking English these days. Hmm. So that the, the the Chinese wall continues to be existent from a cultural slash business perspective because it's too easy for North Americans to go to China and, and engage with Chinese in English. And therefore, they're not really getting close enough to the culture. So that... That I think is a, that's an ongoing challenge for, for for us for the future is to not ever forget that it's it's China is different and to be successful in China you have to you have to understand the history of China a bit and and uh, and 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 how 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 China thinks 
Um, and uh, so that that's always a source of, of uh, it can be a source of, of frustration when you don't understand it. Um, and even if you do, it can be a source of frustration because things don't always happen the way you expect them to happen. But we, sure. we felt that uh, we were always able to solve the problems that we had uh, in a very uh, uh, appropriate way. Uh, and, uh, and therefore, we continue to have confidence. Peter, thank you for being so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.